and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by my friend Terry Teachout for a conversation on noir. The critic series is turning today to what Terry talks of as the first complete noir or the movie as you will see which gets all the elements just right. Everything comes together and everything is there. We're talking about double indemnity. It's Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, it's James Kane. it's Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, a great cast, it's great all around actually, and we hope we'll have time to get to each individual element and try to show just why this movie, made in 1944, has stood the test of time so well and has only become more loved and more admired with time. Its ideas, its polish, its delivery, everything is just right. I wonder if the word loved is quite right here for, for a <laughs> film right. of this quality. I mean, I, obviously, yes, I do love it. It is a very great piece of filmmaking, but it's as dark a film as I know, and uh, it doesn't let you off the hook at all. Yes, that's a very good point. We're always drawn to these things and there's always something disturbing about what it is that we're drawn to since we get closer and closer to tragedy, the more we notice how beautified it all is. It's still a tragic story. And this involves Billy Wilder, a great writer, Raymond Chandler, the American noir writer. He's the top of the pyramid of detective writers, I would say. Yes. And, of course, a man who was very popular at the time, not so popular now, but who nevertheless got that these stories really, really matter and really, really attract American attention. And that's James Cain. So maybe we should start by talking about the story and the storytellers. Well, Double Indemnity began life as a magazine serial, a novella by James M. Cain, originally published, I think it was in Liberty Magazine, which back then was like the Saturday Evening Post, an immensely popular mass market magazine in 1936. Everybody in Hollywood took note of it, but nobody thought you could film it, because by this time, the code was in place, and Double Indemnity is about a pair of adulterers who murder the woman's husband for money. And that set off every possible red light on the dashboard of the code enforcers. And so they basically put it aside until the novella was published in book form for the first time in 1943 as part of a volume, an omnibus, I think it was called Three of a Kind. That's when Billy Wilder read it. And by that time, Wilder was firmly established as a director. He read this story and he thought, I've got to film this. This is absolutely essential. And he also thought through how it could be changed so that he could get it past the censors, so to speak. At the same time, he knew that he couldn't do it alone. And his producing and writing partner at the time was very uncomfortable with the material, thought it was just too sordid. And so Wilder decided to do this one on his own, look for a collaborator. And somebody came up with the idea of Raymond Chandler, who wrote for Hollywood for money, for nothing else, didn't know anything about it. I think this was actually his first real project in Hollywood. He was approached, and knowing nothing about how to write a movie, he uh, knocked out a screenplay in about a week or so. (laughs) And uh, Wilder took one look at it, and um, a scene that you can imagine because it foreshadowed the difficulties of their collaboration. According to one account, he said to Chandler, Mr. Chandler, this is shit. Um, (laughs) And Chandler, not a man who liked to be mistreated or treated with anything less than great respect, was really quite outraged, but he also knew that he was dealing with an expert. And thus began a collaboration that was extremely uncomfortable, was never repeated by either man. They simply didn't get along. But they got along as writing partners, and I think that was because each knew what the other was bringing to the table. In the case of Chandler, he was, I think, bringing to the table what Charles Brackett, Wilder's previous collaborator, had brought which was a real grasp of the English language and its colloquial elements and how to make these characters sound real. Wilder, of course, for him, English was a second language. He spoke it beautifully, but he spoke it as a person for whom German is the first language. Uh, He never quite felt certain with his ability to get people to speak the way that Americans speak. And he knew that Chandler was a master of that. Conversely, Chandler understood that Wilder was a master of cinema structure. 
And they both understood that double indemnity couldn't be filmed as written, both because of the code and because it doesn't quite work on the page. It was Chandler's genius to realize that you couldn't just film James Cain's dialogue straight off the page, that it wouldn't sound natural. He had to bring Wilder around to that point of view. But once they both realized each what the other could do, they were off and running. And they came up with not only one of the great Hollywood screenplays, but with a screenplay that, although they weren't thinking of this, it wasn't deliberate, defined what would become one of the most important genres of Hollywood filmmaking, film noir. They didn't sit down and say, we're going to write a film that will be a matrix for all future films of this kind. But they ended up putting together all of the components of what we now know as film noir. Uh, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but just to remind people, film noir is a film usually with an urban setting and always one that hinges on a moral choice with which the male protagonist is presented. Usually he's being lured by a woman, a femme fatale. He's a regular guy, a straight arrow guy, but maybe he's always thought about the phrase uh, from Double Indemnity, how to crook the house. The key to film noir is that this man makes the wrong choice and that the making of this choice results in fatal consequences for him, for the woman, for both of them. It just depends on how it works out. But the moral choice is the hinge on which every classic film noir turns. Now, add to this a particular kind of cinematography uh, influenced by German expressionism, high contrast, shadowy lighting, and in the very best film noirs, a musical score that is completely consistent with the tone of the film. In this case, written by Miklas Rocha. We'll talk about him more later, but he's also a key element of the mix. All of these things are present in Dummel Indemnity for the first time. There had been movies that had some of them, movies that were clearly prototypes for what is to come. But Wilder and Chandler, between them, got them all into the same package, got them all working in the same way. And suddenly, here was a film that other people in Hollywood looked at and said, wow, I'd like to make a film like that. And that was what happened. Yeah, it has all of what makes a movie compelling, a drama, a conflict that you cannot dismiss, that you cannot exactly predict, and you cannot escape. And on the other hand, everything from imagery to sound to actors just comes alive. Yes. And watching the movie now, although we don't talk that way, we don't dress that way anymore, it still looks incredibly persuasive. It shows how bewitching camera motion is, but it's all just a lot of craft, and it can be done by people who hate each other's guts, or at least don't like each other working together, because That's the right. craft is sort of independent of all that. A few years ago, I actually reviewed a play about the making of Double Indemnity. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Billy and Ray, I think it was. Uh, it was not a great play in any way, but it's a great idea for a play. Two people who hate each other, trapped in a room. It's like no exit. Uh, the only way to get out mm -hmm. is to write the movie. And that was, in fact, what they did. And for all their dislike of one another, they knew what they were up to. They each knew how good the other was at the thing that he did well. And collaboration can work that way. It's better when you like the partner, maybe. But to like the partner is not in any way necessary. All that is necessary is that sparks be struck. I'm struck by how contemporary double indemnity feels. It doesn't look contemporary. They're not wearing, as you say, modern clothes. The settings are not modern. The automobiles are not modern. But the conflict is modern. The lightness of tone. One thing I noticed when I, I came back to Double Indemnity last week, preparing for this podcast, and I was struck by how much of the first act of the film plays almost like a romantic comedy, almost like a screwball comedy. Two characters who meet cute in the jargon of filmmaking. Very, very snappy comic dialogue. There's an obvious and immediate attraction between the two of them. The thing is moving along at, at a couple of hundred miles an hour. I mean, it just flies down the tracks. Except that the stakes are different because you realize very quickly that while love is an element of this film, let's not forget that, this film is a romance. But it's a romance that cannot be brought to fruition without somebody's getting murdered. I think that's really the distinctive tone of this movie. Up to a point... Up to a certain point, it's funny, it's snappy, it's very much of the moment. But it also has that wised-up darkness uh, that I think we look for in films of the post-war era. 
and uh, if it doesn't excite you, if it doesn't excite you listening to these two people talking to each other in that way, you're just not going to like classic movies at all. I don't see how you could. Everything that's exciting about a classic Hollywood film, a crime drama, is present here, including tremendous chemistry between the two leads. They are Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, who have played together before tremendously effectively in Mitchell Lyson's romantic comedy, Remember the Night. They are both a particular kind of player. Fred McMurray is a charming, light comedian, very effective in romantic comedy. Barbara Stanwyck is usually a heroine. And Billy Wilder has come to them and said, I want you both to play a couple of murderous heels. They were very uncomfortable about that. Uh, they had to be persuaded. But they were also two very smart people. McMurray knew that while he was a movie star of sorts, he wasn't a top-tier figure, uh, and that maybe a film like this could uh, propel him to another level of achievement. And I think Barbara Stanwyck realized that her career, although a fine career, it wasn't making her Betty Davis. She was a movie star, but she needed an extra little push to make her more interesting and also to get her over that hump, which comes when a woman actor is moving out of the bloom of first youth and realizes that she has to figure out what she's going to do in the next part of her life. And Billy Wilder answered that question for her. He said, you're going to play really tough and dangerous women. And in this case, you're going to play a bad girl a really, really bad girl. And they both had the wit to realize that they should say yes. Which brings us to the third lead of this movie, who also had to make a decision of that kind. Edward G. Robinson, one of the great film stars, leading men of the 30s, who is now entering middle age and is reaching the point where he himself cannot sustain leading man roles anymore. There's just too much of a premium on youth. And Robinson, who was not a conventionally attractive person, is a tricky guy to cast as a leading man. And so essentially, Wilder came to him and said, look, why don't you try being a character actor instead? I'll pay you the same amount of money and we'll give you a part that is just fabulous. It lets you do everything that you do well. You're not going to be the romantic lead in this movie, but it's going to show you off. And Robinson, who was a great craftsman, a very serious actor, again, had the wisdom to recognize now's the time for me to make that change. And so he is cast as Barton Keyes, the man who finds out that Fred McMurray, his best friend, is a murderer. And he took the role and ran with it. So you've got these three great actors who are all making a major turn in their careers, and they accomplish it with the utmost skill and sensitivity. And again, the total package of Double Indemnity involves not just a perfectly written script, a perfectly directed script where all the production values are right, but three actors who can completely embody these parts. Yeah, it cannot be emphasized enough how something that looked like, oh, where's my career going? What am I going to take a chance on? Turned into something great, better than you'd ever have expected. Stars could not have done this better, however, at the peak of their fame. And on the other hand, these three stars solidified or rather achieved a permanent quality. As long as Hollywood is remembered, they will be remembered for this because they arrive at the fullness of their adult powers. The complexity of the characters is part of it. And the other part is the amazing way they play together. This is incredibly simple and profound. Fred McMurray has a friend and then a woman friendship and love, men and women, law and what he thinks of as happiness are completely opposed here. And so the few scenes where they're all three on screen and they don't quite know each other, what they think is familiar is actually foreign, what they think of as foreign is actually way familiar. They're incredibly powerful for that reason because they stand in this opposition that's tragedy written clearly. Law on the one side, love on the other. You cannot yes. have both. And this is a love story. Let us not ever uh, turn our, our, our minds from that. It's a very particular kind of love story. Again, when I was watching the film last week, uh, it, it struck me for the first time uh, that we don't... Uh, obviously, the film starts in Medias Race. We're off and running. We don't see much of Fred McMurray's previous life, but we see some of it. We see where he lived. We see some of his relationships, and we realize he has a very little life. He lives in what looks like a furnished room, a furnished flat, 
not not poverty stricken, but it's shabby. There's nothing personal, nothing individual about it. He doesn't seem to have any friends other than his boss, Barton Keyes, in the workplace. Uh, he sees women, but he has no lasting relationships with them. There's something empty about that life, something unfulfilled. And then into it walks uh, the bottle blonde with an anklet who comes down the stairs. And he takes one look at her and he realizes, I want this. And it's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming to him. And we must believe that because something's got to be overwhelming to you in order to set you on the course of committing a murder. He, here is where I would like to mention Miklos Rosha, who wrote the score to this film. Uh, Rosha would become completely, not completely, he wrote all kinds of movies, but he would become very strongly identified in the, after this with film noir. Uh, he is one of the half dozen greatest composers ever to write for film. Uh, he was had, a, of course, a very serious and well-deserved reputation as a classical composer prior to that. To me, the key to what he brings to this film is that his score tells us something of which we might not otherwise be sure, which is that this really is a love story, that Fred McMurray really does love the Barbara Stanwood character. Uh, the love may be twisted, it may be, uh, it's disturbing, its implications are deeply disturbing. But his feeling is real, because the music on the soundtrack, uh, the love theme, is telling us this at every point where we need to be reminded of it. Not in a gooey, sticky, Max Steiner way, uh, in, a, in a modern, uh, dissonant, totally persuasive way. We know that McMurray is on the level, but Barbara Stanwyck isn't. And that's what makes this film so interesting. Uh, but uh, if you want to know what what movie music contributes to the storytelling process, Double Indemnity is a great way to study that process. It sets the tone. It creates the urban tone. It creates the feeling of anxiety. But it also tells you when you need to know the meaning, at least part of the meaning, of what you're seeing. Uh, so it's a love story. It's a love story about a modern man lost in the city who has no real life of his own, who is confronted with a woman who offers him the promise of something different, something better. And to get it, all he has to do is help her kill her husband. Now, if that's not a setup for a movie, I don't know what is. I completely agree, and seeing how important the music is for characterization, dealing with the scene and with the character, and at the same time foreshadowing the inevitable tragedy of the plot, achieving all that, and without words, it's a masterstroke. And, you know, Fred McMurray is tall, dark, and handsome. He looks sort of well-meaning, a bit of an everyman, but he's also a big guy, and he plays cool in this movie. There's cool dialogue. He seems completely self-composed, self-controlled, wisened up. And there's only things in his narration, like he says, I'm 35, unmarried. Uh-huh, okay, there's a suggestion there, but it's just a suggestion. He seems completely in control of himself, but the music lets you know there is a storm in his soul now. It's not just that she's a beautiful woman, it's that he is baffled. You do need dissonant music to realize that when love takes a hold of you, it's a pain in your heart. Yes. And we look at her coming down the stairs, on top of the stairs first, beautiful Barbara Stanwyck. So cool, so glamorous, exposed, but completely shameless about it and in control of herself. Just a little bit cheap. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit cheap. Exactly. And so is Fred McMurray. That's one of the neat things about his characterization. I don't remember where I read this, but I think Billy Wilder said at some point, he knew that this guy who played good guys uh, would understand how to play uh, Walter Neff because Fred McMurray, before he was an actor, had been a saxophone player in a dance band. He knew something about that world. Uh, true or not, it does say something about the kind of guy that Walter Neff is. You know, he's a snappy dresser. Uh, he's quick with the comeback. Um, uh, and he's very quick to recognize that this married woman might be sexually available to him. Uh, so he's no innocent. Uh, he's, 
he's just uh, more innocent than she is. Mm-hmm. They're they're adults and they know that they're not above temptation, but right. they do relate to it very differently. And he's he he learns gradually, and his narration brings this out beautifully in a way that Chandler was a master at. That his it's dawning on him gradually that his weakness comes from his strength. His unusual power and self-possession and confirmed bachelorhood is what exposed him. He thought he was all so smart. He didn't realize he had a certain weakness. He says, who would have thought honeysuckle could sometimes be the smell of murder? Yes, wonderful line, wonderful line. It's a perfume. It comes into you. It seems so pleasant. How could that be sinful? Well, wait and watch. Wait and see. He's not as smart as he thinks he is. He is, and this is a word that is always used in describing a certain kind of film noir character, a chump. He is someone of whom advantage is going to be taken. Uh, It's going to be taken by a woman whose goodwill he believes in and trusts, and instead she's going to bring him uh, down the road that has no turning back. And because we like him, because he is a likable actor, uh, this is what engages us uh, in what is going to happen. Uh, If he were just some hard-edged cynic, uh, somebody who who projects a villain's uh, 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 atmosphere, we wouldn't feel that way about the film. Uh, But you like Fred McMurray. And that's something that he traded on for the rest of his life as an actor. I mean, he became one of the most famous... uh, uh, sitcom dads years later in My Three Sons. He made films for Walt Disney. He is a person whom you want to like and therefore he is a person whom you don't want to see head down that road. But because of his complexity, because of what he brings to the table, what Billy Wilder intuited that he had in him, um, you believe that he could do something like this. Um, you, you mentioned that, that McMurray is telling us what's happening. Let's talk about the fact that this is a narrated film. Uh, it's really hard to use uh, first-person narration in a movie and not kill the drama. But it's a technique that Billy Wilder was much given to, uh, that he comes back to over and over again. And, uh, of course, this is an adaptation of, of, of a novella. Uh, so... This kind of narration can be a crutch. But between them, Wilder and Chandler came up with a dramatic device that causes the narration to make sense, which is at the very beginning of the film, uh, everything has happened. This film is a flashback. Um, uh, Fred McMurray comes staggering into the insurance office. And we're going to talk more about uh, Barton Keyes in a moment, but he feels obliged to let Keyes know what has happened before he tries to get out of town. In life, he probably would have written a note, but that's not something that works in a film. Instead, he dictates into a dictation machine, what was back then called a dictaphone. He dictates the story of the film. He tells Keyes into a microphone what has happened to him. This is a device that was brought, put in the film by Wilder and Chandler. And James M. Cain talked about it afterwards. He loved this movie. And he said this particular detail was something that he would never have thought of, that he thought was an improvement on the book. And uh, uh, I'm quite struck by it. I mean, I I have written plays also, and I understand how tricky it is to break the fourth wall and have a character start talking to you directly. It can kill the drama. In this film, it propels the drama. And partly it's because this likable man is telling the story of his own doom. Uh, And McMurray, by the way, is terrific as that that first-person narrator. Um, I would have liked to have been at the recording session where he uh, laid down that dialogue. Uh, He just tells the story. He tells it efficiently, straightforwardly. lets the story propel itself, tell itself, uh, but it's a fabulous piece of acting and he's not seen doing it except at the beginning and end of the film when we see him bleeding to death at Barton Key's desk uh, talking into the dictaphone. Um, I, 
just another example of how amazingly skillful Wilder and Chandler were, uh, that they knew that this potentially drama-killing device would, in fact, be one of the most exciting things about the movie. Yeah, I mean, you have to think through the conflict and ask yourself, this guy, what would get him to confess? And he says, I don't like that word, confession. What would get him there? He has to become aware, and this is the burden of the story then, to show you that he is aware he is being corrupted at some point. That what he thought made him cool and strong and wise, in fact made him wicked and weak. And he has to begin to square with that, he has to become introspective. He says, yeah, well, I tried, go get a beer somewhere, go bowling, do normal middle-class American things that you might do to get something out of your mind, but there's something on your mind that won't go away. And it won't be enough. And this teaches him to be introspective gradually, that there's something inside of him that he can't control. And he also, he also feels the iron necessity to confess what has become of him to Barton Keyes. And that's where we should bring this character in. Because Double Indemnity is not just a one-way love story. Uh, It's not just about the love story between uh, Barbara Stanwyck and uh, uh, Fred McMurray. It is also a story about two men who are loving friends. Barton Keyes is is uh, Walter Neff's father figure. And again, this is something that, that Chandler and, and Wilder put into the novel. It's not there. Keyes is there, but the relationship is not articulated in this way. Uh, they're extremely close. Uh, uh, Keyes really believes that that Walter Neff can be more than just a guy who sells insurance, that he can become an executive, that he can uh, stop being a salesman and start really working, seeing the excitement of, of being a man who, who investigates claims, who, who unmasks uh, the dishonest. Uh, he wants him to do this because he sees him as someone like a son. And... Uh, we know it's it's done with great economy. It's clear to us that they both feel this way about each other. Um, you know, I, I don't go along with people who think that there's some implication of a homosexual angle in this film. It's not that. It's father-son. Uh, it, it's quite clear that it's father-son. And because Fred McMurray also feels it, feels it powerfully, it's not just enough for him to try to get across the border at the end of the film and escape. He has got to tell his father figure, Barton Keyes, what he did and why he did it. And that's what brings him back to the offices of Pacific All Risk Insurance to sit down at Keyes' own desk, use his own dictaphone, and tell him the story of what has become of him. And which also sets us up for the incredible last scene of this film. Uh, After the confession has been made, we're back in the present tense again. And... It is now clear to everybody, to both of them and to us, that uh, Walter Neff's not going to get away. He's been shot. He's been shot by uh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, whom he's also killed. And he's bleeding to death there on the floor of the office. And uh, here is his father, who has come, who heard the last part of the confession, who knows that he's been fooled. He was, he was, other people were telling him, it looks like this guy might be dishonest. But he said, no, that's not possible. Uh, my Walter Neff couldn't have done something like that. And there they are together. And the emotion, what we see in them, is not betrayal. It's not anger. It's exactly what a father would feel if he sees his son and his son has done something terrible and he's about to pay the ultimate price for it. Now, he doesn't reject him. Uh, he enfolds him. Uh, this this feeling is so powerful that the film originally didn't end there. Um, there was an additional scene of film for the end of Double Indemnity in which we saw the execution in the gas chamber of Walter Neff with uh, Barton Keyes as a witness. Uh, it was filmed. Uh, the film has not survived. There are some still photographs from it, which is why we know, and, and the script, which is why we know it was supposed to end that way. And Wilder uh, looked at that and said, we don't need it. We should end here. Uh, in, in accordance with his own oft-stated rule of filmmaking, 
which is uh, keep the action rising and rising and rising to the very end, to the denouement, and then when all is revealed, get off, drop the curtain right then. And that's what he did. He dropped that last scene, and he drops the curtain on the two of them on the floor of the office uh, with, with the life's blood bleeding out of, of Walter Neff. Um, and with the two of them reminding us that they love each other. What a colossal, colossal finish! Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a great relationship, and it is portrayed so well. There are small touches that show you care and affection, like who's lighting whose cigarettes and cigars in this movie. Yeah, most of the movie it's always Fred there with that uh, phosphorus uh, match, and he just has to scratch it with his nail. And he's gonna be able to to light uh, Ed Robinson's cigar, and that's just so father and son. And it's only at the end that Ed does it for him when he realizes that the man's just gonna die there. He doesn't have yeah. the power anymore to light this last cigarette, and he does it for him. And that says so much about resignation, about sadness, and about love. And uh, you're right. That's. Uh, uh, I understand why people uh, wonder, you know, is it somehow some kind of homosexual encoding? Our movies don't have any room anymore for friendship between men. And this movie not only does, but has this great complexity, as you said. They're, in a certain sense, co-workers and in that way equals, intelligent men, independent. But they also have this other relationship as mentor and mentee, as father and son they're incredibly close and that puts the moral stakes of the downfall of Fred McMurray so vividly immediately before us and at the same time it gives him a reason why would you ever tell the truth you don't think you can be redeemed there's no getting out of from under this but there's at least telling the truth to a man you have some hope he'll understand you there's someone you could trust with even your worst secret and that is, it, it's part of what we expect out of Walter Neff uh, and out of the way that Fred Murray plays him. Remember that we like him. We're sympathetic with him. He's done a terrible thing. Uh, he's going to have to pay the price for it. Uh, but we do care about him. And so we want him to do this last right thing, uh, to, to, to confess. That's what you do under these circumstances. Uh, of course he can't get away, uh, not just because of the code, but because this is a tragedy, and therefore he must not get away. But uh, we want him, insofar as it's within his power, to do the right thing. And he does. They do the right thing for one another. As opposed to Barbara Stanwyck, who turns out to be somebody who does almost nothing but the wrong thing. That is one fabulous character, Phyllis Dietrichson. Um, I can't remember the first time, how I felt the first time I saw Double Indemnity. I can't remember when I didn't know the plot of the film, whether I suspected her, uh, whether I thought uh, that she was going to be the double-crosser. At that point, it, it might possibly have been the first film noir I ever saw back when I was in college, so I didn't bring any preconceptions uh, to watching the film. But here's this beautiful, sexy woman. How could you not be attracted to her? Um, even though she's a little cheap, uh, we do learn things about her, or rather she tells us things about herself. Her husband mistreats her. He doesn't care for her. Uh, it's a loveless marriage. She's, she's essentially alone. Um, we don't really know what's going on, which is that not only... Is she lying to us? But she's done this before. These are things that are all revealed later on. Uh, the hook is put in our lip in the same way that it's Fred McMurray's lip. Uh, uh, you see them together, and you know, obviously, if you're a reasonably moral person, you don't think that they should go off and kill her husband. But sympathy is created for her plight. And it is only as the film develops that we realize step by step that she doesn't deserve any of this sympathy, that she is truly an evil woman, the, the quintessential uh, femme fatale spider woman of film noir. Here's where that characterization is first presented and developed in the genre. Uh, and yet there's one twist at the end, in the last scene they play together, and 
that is, um, there they are. Um, she, she shoots him. Um, it doesn't kill him. He doesn't fall down dead. Uh, and she confesses to him. She says, yes, I'm bad. I'm as bad as, as you think I am. But I didn't know until I fired that shot that I really did love you. And uh, when my wife Hillary and I were watching the film last week, I said to her, do you believe what Barbara Stanwyck is saying? And Hillary was thinking that over. And I said, you should because the music is telling you that it's true. Because here, at this ultimate moment, when the next thing that happens in this film is that Fred McMurray's going to kill her, um, we hear, played at, at full volume, the love theme associated with their relationship. And there's nothing ironic about it. Tragic, yes. Ironic, no. Um, it is true. She is bad, but she does love him. And she knows that she's done something... Uh, truly terrible she's shot the man that that uh, she loves and so she must die uh that's another part of what makes this really a, a tragic film and an adult film which is that it is open to the possibility that while she is an evil person evil people can also feel love and can feel that they've made terrible mistakes and can feel genuinely sorry i mean i when he puts the last bullet in her she's ready for it she knows there can't be any life after this uh she she wants it she wants to die uh life has nothing left for her anymore at least that's how i read the last scene of the film yeah i think that there's uh, the plot also works to to give evidence because she shoots him once but she can't shoot again it's yes, really a great work as movie making to give plausibility to that moment. The one moment when she actually is vulnerable and he really is the man in control. She becomes aware of this vulnerability. There is something she's not willing to do. Up till now, the dawning realization that there's nothing this woman won't do. There's nothing at which she will stop. It's like when somebody gets out there and says, do you hold nothing sacred? Have you no shame? There is this great emotion played out through the plot and Billy Wilder works on you. But then there is this one moment. There is something she will not do. And she doesn't know up until she does it. She shoots him once and it turns out it's enough. It's enough to kill him. But not then. And it's certainly not enough to save herself. But she can't bring herself to do it. No, she has she stepped to the edge of becoming a monster, of using love to commit wickedness, to completely evacuate any humanity from love. But she can't bring herself to do it. That's very Wilder-like. Billy Wilder liked to present himself as a complete cynic. And there's quite a lot of cynicism in his films. But more often than not, the only exception I can think of right offhand is the Kirk Douglas character in Ace in the Hole, uh, who really is a cynic and whose cynical view of the world is confirmed by the film. But usually, uh, Wilder's cynicism is concealing, well, sometimes sentimentality, uh, always real feeling. Uh, it's what happens in Stalag 17 with the William Holden character. His point of view characters tend to behave cynically, but then turn out not to be able to follow through with the cynicism. And that's very much what is happening here in Double Indemnity. If Billy Wilder were whom he would like you to think he was, well, then she would have shot him again and then headed for the border herself. But no, he's a romantic. He's a Viennese romantic. Uh, he loves Strauss waltzes. I mean, he made a movie called The Emperor Waltz. Uh, and at a moment like this, um, he lets us see that he does, in fact, believe that love is possible, even though uh, between human beings... Uh, it very often ends up with somebody dead, but uh, that doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in it. Uh, yet another reason, I think, why we buy the ending of Double Indemnity. And another tribute to what a marvelous performance Barbara Stanwyck is giving, uh, because you you buy her all the way to the end. I mean, you buy her as sexy, you buy her as suffering, 
you buy her as somebody who is in fact lying to you and lying to Fred McMurray. And at the very end, you buy her as somebody who isn't all bad and is would prefer to go to the grave rather than do the last frightful thing. Uh, that's that's real acting, and she was a real actor. Um, in recent years, uh, she wasn't recognized, I think, at her full worth uh, in in her lifetime uh, in Hollywood. In the last decade or so, she has come to be regarded by critics and commentators as possibly the great female actor of Hollywood in the Golden Age. I, I might well go along with that. She's certainly one of my two or three favorites. I would rank her right alongside people like Jimmy Stewart, like Cary Grant, people at the absolute pinnacle of, of, of film acting. And she's got it all. And she shows it all here. Uh, even even the knack for comedy, which is not salient in this film. And she was a great screen comedian. Uh, yeah. But uh, she shows us everything she's got. Yeah, I think that that she could be the lead in Lady Eve and then the lead in Double Indemnity to do comedy and to do tragedy at that height. If that's not proof of greatness, there is no proof of greatness. That is right. Let's talk about Edward G. Robinson, who is, comes as close as possible to stealing this movie out from under those two. I mean, obviously he can't because it's structured to prevent him from doing it. But uh, he gets full value for money out of his scenes. Uh, he was, and, and the best moment of all in the film, why? I, I can't say that. I mean, everything he does is great. My favorite moment in the film, and many people, it's their favorite scene is the scene in which um, the stupid insurance executive uh, calls Barbara Stanwyck in uh, to try to get her to sign away the claim because it looks suspicious. And uh, she eats him and spits him out and stalks out of the office. And without cracking a smile, uh, Edward G. Robinson explains that uh, this guy made a complete mistake, which is that you just don't commit suicide by jumping off the back of a moving train. And he, he, he resorts to the actuary tables to prove that this is true. Boy, does that sound boring. No, it's not boring. Uh, uh, Edward G. Robinson has a monologue. It's a couple minutes long. Shot in a single setup. Uh, the, uh, there, there's no intercutting. And what we're seeing, I, I was told by an, a friend of mine, is in fact the first take. He walked in and did it like this. Like a stage actor, he comes in and rattles off this speech, this rising arc of action. It's like an aria from an opera in which he explains how, because he spread the actuary tables, he knows that this, this couldn't have happened the way that the stupid insurance executive thinks that it is. The stuff of pure boredom, and he makes it into an absolute virtuoso moment. I, you want to clap when he gets to the end of that scene, um, which would be appropriate because he plays it like the stage actor that he was. That's how he started out. Uh, you know, he began as a stage actor. Um, every time he's on the screen, you look at him. He has the same amount of star quality as Stanwyck and McMurray do. And because he's used so carefully, because his part is written to not get in their way, but to let him take the lead whenever he's on screen, uh, especially in the scenes in which the scenes in which all three of them are on screen, where she's overhearing what's going on and she's concealing herself, a uh, very virtuoso piece of, of camera work. But they let him take the lead, I think, because these are two smart actors and they know. You're not going to steal a scene from Edward G. Robinson when he's on screen. Let him have his scene. Yep. He'll leave, and then you get the movie back. Yep, and uh, and, and it rises uh, every time he starts speaking. It rises to a certain pitch, and you see a lot of that is they act like they're movie actors. He acts like he's a stage actor, and the contrast is incredibly rich and rewarding and keeps the movie fresh even when you know the lines down path what delivery does and what emphasis does there is just tremendous and with him you get a, a view of what's missing from them he has nobility he can take something like insurance 
and and show you the American story or a very important American story because of what insurance means. We get two views of the future in this movie. One of them is this tragic doom. You're on the train, you're on the trolley to the end of the line. There's no getting off. That's the inevitability of the plot and of tragedy. Then there's this other thing. We're all afraid of some bad things happening. Some of us have suffered terrible losses or know that they could happen at any time with uh, shocking plausibility. We want insurance. Insurance is supposed to insure us against the future. It's supposed to protect us against the kind of tragedy we see happening in this movie. And here's the man who does it and he knows full well what his job is. He knows he's superior to the owner of the corporation who's a loser, an inheritor. That's not all American. Right. But but he still does his job even though he's in a sense unrewarded because he knows the importance of it. He talks of himself as a surgeon of the soul. Yes, wonderful line. Yeah. And the father confessor and the justice system. He is everything but executioner. He leaves that out because he has no power to punish and of course it would become too dark. Execution does emerge at the end in a different way. Turns out Fred McMurray is the executioner. But but him, he is all of nobility and he shows that. What an ambition there is in capitalism. You know, figure out those actuarial tables, do the statistics there, run the numbers right. Uh, Billy Wilder loved these scenes of offices, a high-flown shot of a big office where you see row on row on row all the workers, and of course the empty office, which is all of a sudden looks uncanny. There's something wrong here. This is actually a great setting for a, a death. I never thought of an office that way. No, no. Yeah. You see, and think, think about what kinds of roles... Robinson had been playing just a few years before. He was he was a star who played villains. Uh, not always, but we think of him as a gangster. Uh, he was asked, what is it about you? You're not tall, you're not handsome. And he said, I project menace. And that was what he did in those roles. That's what made him famous. Uh, he could do other things. He was actually quite good at comedy, we discovered uh, around this time. Uh, sometimes he plays a good guy in those earlier films, but we think of him as the bad guy. What a complete transformation that he should become this kind of, of well, hero. He's the hero of Double Indemnity. He is, yep. he, is, he is the one who is trying, although he doesn't know it, to save his son from making the fatal mistake. Uh, and boy, that's where the tension comes. He understands everything about what's going on, except he cannot bring himself to believe that Walter Neff, uh, whom he loves like a son, could have stooped so low. Uh, and thus, the, the colossal effect of the final scene, uh, which is underplayed, you know, that's the way you do it in films. You know, he doesn't chew the rug, he doesn't go pulling his, his, his balling hair. He just sits, slides, sits there on the floor uh, with Fred McMurray Cradle in his lap, uh, like a, a disappointed but loving father, and uh, says what he has to say. Uh, and for the rest of his life, uh, Edward G. Robinson was able to play a wider range of parts because he showed us in Double Indemnity uh, that he could be this part. All he had to do was give up the necessity to be the leading man, and a whole new world of, of dramatic possibility was opened up to him. What a wonderful actor. He's really, he's, I, I love them all, but Robinson is one of the great uh, character men of, of Golden Age Hollywood, whom I admire the most, whose, whose range is so tremendous, uh, who aged wonderfully well who at the very end of his life uh, can walk into a film like The Cincinnati Kid and steal it out from under Steve McQueen, who at that time was one of the, the biggest stars in the history of Hollywood. And yet this old guy uh, walks away with the movie. Uh, what a professional. That's the right word. Uh, he is the ultimate professional, and he's playing the ultimate professional. He's in Double Indemnity. You see with him what control he has. He knows what he can do, and he knows where to deploy each power, even if he had to completely transform the kind of character he does. 
he he can't do menace he's not a gangster anymore this isn't the ma- a mafia movie but you know you are threatening to undo the destinies of people who try to commit fraud there in his quest for justice and his all-american desire not to be played for a sucker there you see some of the anger come out or in a completely restrained way at the end when before he can rejoin fred mcmurray for the death scene you just hear him matter of factly deadpan call for an ambulance say yes it's a police situation yeah it's a morgue job Um, one of my favorite one of my favorite lines of his in the film is he's he's realized that something he's not getting uh, what's happening he hasn't got it figured out uh, and he says to Fred McMurray, the guy who has cooked the house, he says, something has been worked on us. And he says this with tremendous energy and, and, and anger. Uh, somebody's trying to put something over on him. Somebody who maybe is a murderer. Uh, and yet, of course, his response to this is, you know, I've been fooled. How is this possible? I'm the guy with the actuary tables. I should be able to figure out what's wrong here. The only thing he couldn't figure out was, uh, as he says at the end of the film, that you know a murderer could be at the other end of your desk, well, and his closer and, than and, that. closer than that, Walter, closer than that. God, what a line! Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, there's just the nothing wrong with this. The economy of film. these lines is just tremendous. You realize everything that the guy means, and he just says in three words. This is not an overwritten film, and Raymond Chandler could overwrite, lest lest we forget. I mean, we know that from his novels, that, you know, he's the master of the simile and metaphor, and that's part of why we books, they're just delicious. But when teamed with Wilder and put in this situation, uh, where the film is playing out with tremendous speed, it's being narrated, you can't waste words, no words are wasted. Even in the third person, even the first person narration, uh, nobody says anything that they don't need to say. Um, If this is a perfect movie of its kind, I don't use that word lightly. Um, uh, Film doesn't lend itself to perfection because it is a commercial medium. It's limited by virtue of the fact that. This is a genre picture. This isn't Shakespeare we're talking about. Uh, it's it's a murder mystery. Uh, but it is a film... Well, I, Pauline Kael, when she wrote about this film, put her finger on what I think is the only even close flaw in the film, which is that not all of the supporting roles are played quite as well as those, those, those three uh, top roles. Sometimes... They're just a bit overcooked. Like the the guy who uh, uh, Fred saw Fred McMurray on the train, um, things like that. There, there, there's a little bit of exaggeration. Uh, sometimes you'd like for them to be cast a bit better. Except for that, there is just nothing wrong with this movie at all. Uh, not in the script, not in the lead performances, not in John Seitz's extraordinary cinematography, which is like the code book for film noir with all those Venetian blind shots and, uh, you know, the high contrast, uh, not in Mikkels Roche's score. Everything in this film does exactly what it needs to do. No more, no less, no exaggeration. Uh, it's not too long. Uh, yeah. It's a piece of entertainment, but it's a serious piece of entertainment, dealing with very serious moral questions. Uh, you don't have to be ashamed to love double indemnity. Uh, like Hitchcock's best work, uh, it is entertainment that touches on deep and profound aspects of human nature. Um, it's as good as a movie like this can possibly be. Yeah. One of the, maybe one of the half dozen best films to come out of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. Certainly it would make any any short list that I would draw up of, of great Hollywood films. Double Indemnity would be on it. Yeah, it's it's hard to to say exactly how well it does this because every art is put together, every effort is put together with every other in this movie to both bring the emotions out of you 
to stun you with the necessity of this terrible ending at the same time as you believe in it as, as it becomes fully plausible the more you learn and all of it is supposed to, 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 to leave you thinking look at these characters are they not human is this not hiding always beneath our normal peaceful comfortable middle class lives which we all want and need and appreciate but isn't there more in our hearts don't you see this in a bit of a news item you caught hold of don't you see these possibilities in some gossip you may have heard these things are also in our hearts and in our lives but look at them here take center stage be fully developed does not our everyday life touch a little on shakespearean tragedy now it's it's that's why it's so awesome it's in, in the literal sense, you fear what is going to happen here. And that's why film noir has become ever more popular since the original noirs were made in the 40s. Uh, because this element of moral choice that is built into the genre is inviting the viewer to ask, what would I do? What would happen if I found myself in this kind of situation? Remember, all of those those film noir chumps are regular guys like Fred McMurray. Uh, they're people that you could put yourself in their place. And suddenly uh, something comes into the frame that you're not expecting. And you have a chance to crook the house and get away with Barbara Stanwyck. All you have to do is kill somebody. What would you do? Are you so sure that you wouldn't do what he does? And, of course, the film tells you if you do, uh, you're going to end up dead on the floor of the Pacific All Risk Insurance Company because the code requires it. You're not allowed to get away with these things. Um, uh, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, that's, that's, that's the appeal of film noir, is it forces us to look at ourselves and the modern world in which we live and, and ask ourselves, am I better than this? Do I know that I'm better than this? Is it possible that I, faced with a similar situation, might make the same wrong choice? There's the drama of the genre. There's the appeal of the genre. Uh, yes. It's. I think that as audiences confront these movies again and again, we all of us realize at some level we are not above temptation. Maybe in, uh, in all of us there will be some moment where you feel maybe I'm a little cheap. It happens, it's humanity. But at the same time, as in a certain sense, we're lowered from our claims of moral up-and-upness or purity even, we also get this other sense. Look at this man torn between the friend he loves and the woman he loves. Isn't that a human conflict that has a kind of grandeur yeah. to it? And yeah, these things will last. They show us what's in our hearts in a way we can't look away from. Yeah, for a long time, critics were reluctant to say that a movie like Double Indemnity could actually be a serious work of art. Uh, and then we, we all the way in the other direction now, and are telling us that there's really no art other than popular art. And I uh, would not hesitate to say that uh, Hamlet is, uh, and Macbeth are better than Double Indemnity. Uh, you know, I, I really do believe in these hierarchies of art. But I also believe that Double Indemnity partakes of the same things that make them great works of art and that on its limited level, limited by the fact that it is a genre picture, by the fact that we do ultimately know how it has to turn out, nevertheless, uh, this is, this is, this is the stuff of real tra tragedy that we're dealing with here. If you can't take this seriously, not just the craftsmanship, but the story that is being told, which is a parable, let us let us put our finger on it. It's a parable. Uh, it's what what could happen to you in a similar circumstance. How would you behave? If you can't take that seriously as a work of art, then you are not paying attention. You are not receiving uh, these films at, at at their proper value. And I, I assure you, Billy Wilder wasn't thinking of that when he made it. Uh, for him. Uh, it was a marvelous way to earn a living and make a lot of money. He liked telling stories. It was pleasurable for him. Uh, but he took the craft seriously. That's why he became a director, because he hated what other directors were doing with his scripts. Uh, he said the only reason why he became a director was to protect his material. 
Now, if that doesn't tell you how serious he is, nothing does. Um, so this is a serious movie. It yep. is a, a serious work of art on its level. Yes. Deserves, deserves all of the attention we're giving to it as, as a moral statement, a statement about man's nature. Um, Macbeth it isn't, but what it is, is quite sufficient in and of itself. Yeah, there's a difference between greatness and merely being touched by greatness, but this surely is touched by greatness. Yes. We're all grateful for it. I think that's what signals the touch of greatness. After you go through all the drama, if you go through all the emotional turmoil, after you go through being stunned, at the end you're grateful for it. Yes, well said, well said. I can't watch this movie without being thrilled by how good it is and how much pleasure it gives. And just all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, I guess I do love it. If you can love a movie about a couple of heels, I love Double Identity. <laughs> yes, and I'm also grateful that we're doing this series, that you've joined me for yet another one, and we have a sizable work now and looking forward to doing more noir talk to show that these things are indeed touched by greatness and worthwhile. Out of the past, I think we need to get to. Yes, That's, yes. Uh, that should uh, be our next one. Let's make it our next one, because just as Double Indemnity shows us what the genre will be, Out of the Past shows it once it's become a genre, and tells us what does it mean to make a film once you have an idea of how this kind of film is going to work. What goes into it? Is it different? Does it have the same power? Does it have the same effect? We will have no shortage of things to say about that wonderful movie. Perfect. Thank you for joining me again. Looking forward to going to Bob Mitchum again. And yes. all the best meanwhile. My pleasure. Bye-bye.